What are you doing here? I wanted to meet her. Don't look at her. I know. Where's P2? Return P2 to us or you will be followed. Whatever time you have left cannot endure eternity. Don't you remember me, Elliot? Remember? Remember. Remember. Elliot, this is your new home. Leave him out of this. He's here on his own accord. The concept of independent cinema actually isn't as new as some seem to believe, and there has always pretty much been two kinds of independent cinema. One where stars break from the system to finally do their own thing, and the other where a relative upstart outsider has the chutzpah to not only tear down long-established walls, but in the process build bridges for others to cross into the industry as well. Two of the most famous examples of both in Hollywood history would arguably be of the former, one in February of 1919 for the biggest stars of the silent era, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and director D.W. Griffith, joined forces to form the then independent company United Artists in order to oppose the financial and creative strangulation they and others felt from the big five studios of the day, MGM, Paramount, 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and RKO. And one of the earliest examples of the second would be how around the same time, African-American novelist Oscar Micheaux very much came out of nowhere to almost 100 years before Tyler Perry established himself as the first black American one-man studio, he having not only written, directed, and produced 40 films and seven novels in just under 30 years between 1919 and 1948, but he also personally distributing his films by taking prints by hand from town to town at a time when standard distribution avenues didn't exist for people of color. That spirit of both brands of independent American cinema would extend into the 1960s and 70s, when later stars such as Paul Newman, Sidney Poitier, Barbara Streisand and Steve McQueen joined forces to found First Artists in order to get more personal films made and into theaters which, believe it or not, even artists of their clout had a hard time doing on their own. Then again, on the out-of-nowhere upstart outsider side of the street, one-man industries like Roger Corman arose and created bridges of opportunity for a new generation of filmmakers, such as Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, Joe Dante, Jack Nicholson, Bruce Dern, Dennis Hopper, Ron Howard, James Cameron, James Horner, and many others. That same spirit still exists today. Here at the Movie Sneak, we loves us some independent cinema. And while we regularly bring up obscure or forgotten, and yes, soon to be released independent gems we're just to ache in the sea, at least once per year we like to set aside an episode unto itself to strictly focus on three truly independent filmmakers doing their thing entirely outside the studio system and their projects. And today we've got Stacey Lane Wilson, who we've interviewed before about her documentary, The Venture Stars on Guitars, this time giving us a little behind the scenes info on her new lo-fi, sci-fi, rock and roll comedy, The Second Age of Aquarius. We've got filmmaker Amanda Kazmira Cryer giving us a little previs on her searing in the works documentary, Inside Men, 
which delves into the need to do away with the for-profit prison system. And lastly, ahead of his time, writer-director Chris Chan Lee chats with us about his acclaimed, hard-hitting 1997 coming-of-age drama Yellow and his currently on the festival circuit Silent River, which begins as a Sam Shepard-like drama about a man seeking reconciliation with his estranged wife, then branches into mind-bending genre territory worthy of Rod Serling and Richard Matheson. Recently returned from Europe, where just a few weeks ago Silent River picked up a jury award at the Paris International Film Festival, we're honored to have Chris, along with Stacy and Amanda, join us for our second annual celebration of Independence Day. I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, and welcome to an all-new edition of The Movie Sneak. First up, Stacy Lane Wilson. So, um, thanks for stopping by and being on again. I'm really happy to chat with you again, Craig. It's um, you're one of my favorite podcasters, so I'm always uh, thrilled to be on the show. And I love how you uh, spotlight indie filmmakers. So here I am. Very cool. And I think you'll dig uh, the particular show that this interview is going to be a part of. Uh, a couple of really fascinating uh, other guests as well. So I think the three of you will turn quite a few heads and uh, make a lot of people want to definitely check out these films. Oh, thank you. So get to get started, um, The Second Age of Aquarius. For those who may not be familiar with it, can you give us a quick capsule of the film? Uh, sure. It's a, a lo-fi uh sci-fi rock and roll comedy and it's um yeah mostly a two-hander even though it was shot before the pandemic i know it looks like a pandemic movie because it's two people in an apartment but uh one of them can't leave because she's agoraphobic and the other one can't leave because he's an avatar and he's he has to be near his power source which is in the apartment and um Mm -hmm. so yeah I, i you know we kind of liken it to weird science i guess that's the best kind of touchstone for a lot of people this computer programmer al Alberta brings back her favorite departed rock star from the great beyond, Russell Aquarius, who was electrocuted with a microphone in 1970. No, Russell, listen to me. My, my Nana was your biggest fan. She was even at your last concert. I used to go to her house after school and we'd crank up the Aquarius. You? Oh, Grammy loves my music, huh? That's cool, man. Groovy. Well, she did. She would have been your age. Well, the age you would have been if you hadn't, you know. Well, maybe like these delicious snack cakes, I'm just very well... preserved. (laughs) No. 
actually, there was a really beautiful funeral for you and everything. All right, then. Who came to my funeral, hmm? Bill Burroughs? Vonnegut? Was Plant there? God, I swear that bastard stole my lyrics. Look at these concert tickets. Okay? Uh-huh. Look at the date. The Stones are still touring. Yes. <laughs> now I know you're putting me on. Okay, here. Look at this. You're on a behind-the-music show on YouTube. My tube? The Russell Aquarius episode. It starts with footage from your last concert. Look. Russell is one of the few musicians who have died on stage, much to the uh, shock of fans. I'll show you paradise, When we return, we'll talk with Robert Plant, who remembers Russell's tragic decline into drug addiction on Aquarius Rises and Falls. It's kind of funny, um, a couple of things you mentioned, a couple of touchstones, like, you know, weird science, of course, is probably the first thing most people would think of. I ended up, I knew I would enjoy the film. I ended up loving it. Oh, thank because you. It did something that I love. You have genres, and then you have what I've always called subgenres. Like you have science fiction, general genre. Then you have subgenres, like the time travel story, the time loop story. You know, mm-hmm. um, you have uh, in this aspect, I don't know whether to refer to it as a science fiction story. Well, I think you probably gave the best description: lo-fi, sci-fi. Uh, but um, <laughs> yeah, within certain genres, you have your fish out of water story. And then you have your fish out of time story, you know, and I guess fish out of time stories, you know, something like Encino Man or Time After Time or Warlock, those kind of films. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you also have that, I guess, the I Created You story, like Weird Science or Making Mr. Right or something like that. And I like how The Second Age of Aquarius kind of starts like one of those stories, but it definitely gets a little more interesting. And you already hit upon a couple of things, one of them uh, with Alberta being agoraphobic. Uh, just the analogy of her being agoraphobic, sorry, agoraphobic <laughs> and not leaving the apartment and Russell not being able to leave the apartment. Um, so there were a couple of things. That, oh, first of all, a couple of neat, fun little things you mm-hmm. know, um, before we get, quote unquote, deep. And I, I swear to God, I'm not going to do that. But <laughs> <laughs> a couple of neat little things. I love how you sprinkled a lot of neat references all through the film. Uh, first of all, I guess it's sort of Hitchcockian almost references. Neat little venture stars on guitars poster in the background. Oh, there. yeah. thought that was very cool. <laughs> I love the Festival Aquarius poster uh, taking place in Philly, no less. Uh, with, yes. um, well, he was on his of... Gettysburg tour Gettysburg. when he died. Yes, he was. So... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he when was... he left his mortal co- coil. Yeah, he, yeah, <laughs> but he... I love how certain, uh... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, he. it's funny. You know, his final tour was, you know, all the war zones, the past war zones. So anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then he winds up getting <laughs> the... killed. And, and, and the various groups who were there, like the Who, W-H-O-O, <laughs> yeah. and Led Peplin and things like that. I mean, I don't know how many people caught that, but I'm always looking for that sort of thing. So maybe that's why I caught uh, it. I love that And I love how Alberta's you. mom yeah, is. You're such an immersive <laughs> viewer. Mom. Yeah. Thank you. 
And Alberta's mom reading Legends and Lipstick. I thought that was cool, too. Yeah, uh, that's my mom's <laughs> autobiography, for those who don't know. Yeah, we threw in a few little things uh, for Neat. Uh, Easter eggs, I guess. And also, just from a structure standpoint, I kind of like how the radio announcer uh, sort of becomes a Greek chorist or narrator of sorts, uh, filling in a few blanks here and there. Uh, that can be dicey uh, in that... A person can overdo it or it can become very obvious, but I like how the whole movie isn't just um, blanketed over with that, but that every now and then it comes up. Kind of like how um, I love in um, um, The Warriors, uh, that's what I thought of, how you have the DJ and every 15 or so minutes you just see a close-up of her lips and she's introducing a new song like Nowhere to Run, Nowhere to Hide, but she references the Warriors trying to get home back to Coney Island. It kind of reminded me of that, just done in a very clever way. So yeah, I dig of, that kind of thing. One of my favorite movies, for sure. Yeah, and uh, Jeffrey Henderson, who does the voice, he's like a man of a million voices. He can do <laughs> anybody. So I kind of want, I said, you know, please listen, you know, listen to some 1970s DJs and just that smooth kind of soothing way that they spoke. And he really nailed it, I thought. And also, yeah, we had to kind of have a way of um, talking about Russell's past and introducing him without being too intrusive. Mm-hmm. And it does open the film up a little. I mean, you refer to it as a two-hander made before COVID. And, it, I mean, in some respects, it almost almost reminded me of a play. And I, I was like, boy, you know, this would actually make a pretty neat play. Um, but just having the radio announcer opens it up a little bit. You know, it kind of reminds us that there's a whole big world out there mm -hmm. that these two characters who can't leave the apartment or won't leave the apartment are in the middle of. Yeah, thank you. That was our intent, for sure. And we love to be able to actually, Darren Smith, my co-writer, uh, wrote mm -hmm. most of that dialogue. And yeah, he's just such nice. a, a really paints a picture with words. Now, you two have collaborated on books and mm -hmm. on this film. How did you uh, how did you guys meet? How did this creative partnership uh, begin? Uh, we met in 2008 on the set of uh, his film, Repo, the Genetic Opera, that he co-wrote mm -hmm. and co-wrote a lot of the music for, and Darren Lynn Bowsman directed. It was a huge uh, rock and roll sci-fi opera mm -hmm. extravaganza, and I was a reporter on the set interviewing people, and Darren and I just had so many things in common. It was like we were already friends for years from the day we met, <laughs> and so now we have been friends for years, and uh so it's really great to collaborate with him. He has just such a, a fascinating mind and such a, a sense of humor that, you know, we get each other. So that is how we met. And um, we collaborated. Our first book was uh, Sex, Death, Rock and Roll. And that's where Russell Aquarius was first introduced as a short story in that anthology. And you guys have collaborated on another book since the film, too, right? Yeah, a couple of them, actually. Um, Rock and Roll Nightmares is a series of three books right now, three fictionalized uh, rock and roll nightmare books that take place in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he and I collaborated on a couple of stories in there in the 60s version. Um, it's my party and I'll die if I want to. And the mm -hmm. 80s, uh, hip to be scared. And then there's also um, <laughs> a follow-up sex, death, rock and roll book. And it's all short stories uh, set in Russell Aquarius's world. So anyone who saw the movie and wants to know a little bit more about the backstories of all the characters, we have uh, collaborated with some of the actors who were lucky enough to 
be writers as well, like Brooke Lewis Bellis. She and I collaborated on a story about her character, Tawny Stevens, and how she was a video vixen in the 80s, and and um, Martin Olson, who plays Sid Greenblatt, Russell's manager. Mm-hmm. He's a very gifted writer, and he um, he's actually an Emmy Award-winning writer for Phineas and Ferb, so he wrote a story about his character going back into how Sid got his nice. eye patch. So, yeah, we've had a lot of fun playing <laughs> in this world. Cool. Now, as I said earlier, I like how the film starts, you know, within a genre, and then slowly it kind of turns into its own beast. Uh, it's sort of, you know. Um, now, there are a couple of things I was wondering. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you have, you know, films and famous stories like Point Blank and Encourage and, Al- and, Encourage and Owl Creek Bridge, Jacob's Ladder, Total Recall, where you have a character who goes through some traumatic incident and it triggers their launch into a story. And during the story, you're wondering, hmm, is this really going on or is this all in the character's head? By the time we get to the end of Second Age of Aquarius, that question has pretty much been answered. Like, yeah, this is happening. It's not like a she woke up and it was all just a dream or was <laughs> yeah. it kind of scenario. They were going to go know, the it, Dallas route. No, they got a lot of flack for <laughs> Right. <laughs> right. So it's certainly not that. However, on an almost subtextual level, and, and I hate using that word in such a to get into such a fun film, but there's some stuff in there that's pretty intriguing and i'm wondering if they were actually there or whether i'm just reading into it for example um russell being here in the world and having no drugs he's kind of detoxing isn't he (laughs) (laughs) right but since he's uh not fully biological matter when he's he eats some gummies it really hits him fast you know instead (laughs) of the usual half an hour so it's kind of fun yeah i mean his biology is a little bit different for sure Mm-hmm. And kind of so is Alberta detoxing, trying to wean herself away from her phone, as she describes, yeah. you know? Uh-huh, right. Um, and I kind of like how early on, Russell is pretty much a dick. <laughs> you know, he's just kind of self <laughs> Well, he's an entitled rock star, you know? He's a, right, exactly. he's a product of his you know, era. Exactly. And I love how at almost a halfway point in the film... It's almost like his first sign of humanity, other than being confused or scared at what's going on. Oh, and my, the best joke, um, the the Rolling Stones are still touring. Yeah, now I know you're putting me on. <laughs> right. The Rolling Stones, the ticket says the child support tour. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we but, had fun um, with I love the how, props. <laughs> cool. I love how around halfway, it's almost his first sign of humanity is when he first says thank you. Her. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, yeah, we wanted to have and, him, you know, have a little arc. And then the whole film kind of shifts. It's almost like the fulcrum shift point. Um, and that's where it kind of like starts turning into something, something a little more than just a haha, this is funny, this is kind of cool. Um, I was wondering, um, uh, Alberta's, I guess, early conflict to delete or not to delete. Um, like I said, early on, he's not the nicest guy in the world. He is that entitled, self-absorbed, 60s rock star kind of person. He almost seems like a kind of mashup of Jim Morrison and um, <laughs> Russell Brand. <laughs> almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah you know? <laughs> funny. Yeah, Darren thought that, too. I mean, I didn't really see the Russell Brand, but uh, yeah, you know, some so of the wondering. reviews. Oh, go on. I was wondering, so why does she quote-unquote, put up with him. I know earlier on she's 
wondering to delete or not to delete. And she even mentions how, hmm, I'll have to change some of this, you know, in mm -hmm. his, for lack of a better term, I don't know, uh, but just change some of his personality traits. <laughs> and have, you know, yeah. and his, right, reprogram him a little bit. And that's almost like a whole nother film in and of itself, a road down which you could go, you know, and w wondering like, okay, there's a saying that in the history of world religions, man has a tendency to create God in his own image. And in some respects, I think people, fans, have a tendency to create their gods in their own image, especially those they've never met before or those they've worshipped from afar, from another time. And it seems that Alberta has certain ideas about Russell, some of which almost seem to be... So, yeah, I don't know whether those ideas were when he materializes in, in, in our time in her apartment. I was wondering if some of those original personality traits were some that she I don't want to say imagined he always had or that maybe she created them in the back of her mind just from her knowledge of 60s culture and then the longer he's here and the lo and the more she gets to know him things start to even out a little bit and become a little more middle of the road I mean do you see where I'm where I'm going yeah, where I'm exactly. asking no, uh, what I'm you know I think I don't think that was something that we you know wanted to make a point okay. of in such a you know we don't want to like say well the I, I guess but it's hard for me to explain too it's like let's see this yeah. is kind of but but you know I, basically like when I was writing uh the characters and of course Darren and I you know we collaborated on this 50 50 but mm -hmm. um you know like for instance just coming from my point of view I'll read some lyrics say from a rock song that i absolutely love and i'm like god this is so deep this is so beautiful this is so profound and then you read about you know the the lyricist the lead singer of the band you know getting arrested for spousal abuse or you know drunk right, and driving right, right. and you're like how does this person like so it's kind of interesting to kind of look at the two sides of a person in that way how they can be so amazing as an artist but so flawed as a human being and that's always something mm -hmm. that i'm interested in uh separating the art from the artist because certainly nowadays mm -hmm. with the advent of the internet we are seeing how awful mm -hmm. some of the people that we've admired for years and years really were so does that affect our love of their art that's the question okay yeah 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 but yeah so yeah i i definitely was picking up something along those lines um it um yeah, I just thought the characters were not nearly as, for lack of a better term, simplistic as their intro would lead the audience to believe. They become much more interesting as the story progresses. Yeah, you really have to stick with it and listen to the dialogue. Um, you know, some of the reviews I was saying a little bit earlier that, um, you know, not every movie is going to get 100% great reviews and some right. people don't get it. So there have been a few negative reviews in which the reviewer refers to Russell as misogynistic, but he's not. He doesn't hate women. I think right. the word misogyny has morphed into something else. Uh, it's thrown around way too freely these it, days. Very much so. Yeah, he's a sexist. He's chauvinistic, but he doesn't hate women. Right. Uh, kind of like the 60s James Bond character. <laughs> exactly. Although yeah. he doesn't slap anyone. He doesn't slap people. <laughs> right, like, right, uh, right, right. <laughs> you know, like the early Bond films. No, but Lower I mean, Devon he's just, did, yeah. you know, he's just a guy that's very hedonistic. And, you know, he's mm -hmm. used to having groupies around throwing themselves mm -hmm. at him. So when when he's with Alberta and she's, you know, a modern woman and has 
a totally different mindset. Although she is, you know, she loves his music through, you know, she became a fan when she was a young girl through her Nana who recently passed away, which is one of the things that leads to her choosing to make Russell Aquarius as an avatar. Um, you know, so she loves him in that way, but she's also not going to put up with any of his BS. Yeah. 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 It's an interesting di dichotomy going on uh, I think between so. them, which is really, really cool. Uh, I guess um, final question. Now I know this was filmed before COVID, and um, did you have? I know COVID tossed a monkey wrench into everything, but did you have any plans before and maybe still to do at least some kind of limited theatrical run? I mean, I could definitely see this kind of film being very, very popular at midnight screenings and that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks. I think so too. I mean, Darren's music is so, so much fun. And there's also, you know, a separate EP for people who want to hear the entirety of the songs because they're just snippets in the film. But yeah, prior to this, um, Brooke Lewis Bellis, who plays Tawny Stevens and, and does such a great job, um, she's so talented and so much fun to work with that she has a lot of friends in the industry and she knows a lot of people that run film festivals. So that had been the plan to do a film festival run first to build up some buzz mm -hmm. for it. Um, but that didn't happen, and so we just decided to release it via VOD. Um, we have a great distributor, um, but they don't uh, do theatrical for most of their films. And when it came out, it was mm -hmm. still, theaters were still kind of iffy, and I know a lot of people still don't yeah. want to go to the theater. But we will be doing um, some women in film festivals and some music festivals, and so we're definitely still going to try to get it shown on the big screen, but anyone, you know, who wants to see it now, it's certainly out there. Very cool. Yeah. I definitely think that, um, sometimes with an audience, a film, I mean, maybe even that critic who referred to Russell as misogynistic. And when I hear somebody say that, I kind of wondered, did he actually sit and watch, did he watch the whole film or did he like just tune in? <laughs> I know, right. Yeah. I got, I got some of that you know? too sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Some people just spot check a film and then review it <laughs> yeah but um i mean i remember in the past i remember the very first mortal Kombat movie uh <laughs> and i knew nothing at all about the game i mean i had heard of it i knew that a lot of my nephews were into it uh i went to go see the movie and i was surrounded by about god at least five or six hundred of the most diehard opening weekend Mortal Kombat fans you ever saw oh, okay. from ages six to sixty, <laughs> and just based on the five guys sitting behind me, by the time the movie ended, I knew every single freaking thing about the Mortal Kombat world. Oh I could gosh, probably go write really? my own game, and I just fell in love with this whole you know intergalactic Enter the Dragon thing, and I think eighty percent of it was just because of the audience. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, oh, definitely. Like Jaws um, is a great movie, but it doesn't play the same without an audience. You know, and this is the kind of film <laughs> yeah, I would love true. to see with an audience. Right. I first saw uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show by myself at home, and I was like, what's all the fuss <laughs> about? You know, and then, of course, I went to a, you know, I, saw, I had rented the movie or whatever, and then went to one of the midnight mm -hmm. screenings. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Yeah, it's a sense of it community now. for sure with fandom. So, in fact, that's the name of the story that. Uh, Russell and Alberta come from the first short story. It's called Fandom slash Phantom. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a fun world to play in, and I'd love to have more people join us, hopefully, at film festivals. Very cool. So hopefully, um, via VOD, 
a lot more people will become familiar with the film so that uh, should this day come, you know, where it starts hitting film festivals and, and, and just making the rounds, um, yeah, that we could definitely get a groundswell of people who uh, really dig watching it uh, with an audience. That would be really, very cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so too. Excellent. Well, once again, thanks for doing this, Stacey. Um, yeah, always a pleasure when you drop by. Uh, thanks for having me on again. The privatization of prisons and detention centers has been a source of debate for over three decades. There has to be some things in our society that we agree are not a business opportunity. There's absolutely nothing wrong with profiting off of anything. The question is, are you providing a service with good quality, with humane conditions, and so on? The moral imperative of government should be to deliver the best outcomes. The U.S. privatized parts of its state and federal corrections and detention facilities in the 1980s. Two companies in particular, CoreCivic and GeoGroup, have dominated the industry. But the uncertainty of a highly polarized industry stems mainly from the political climate. At the end of President Obama's second term, then-Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates announced that the administration would phase out private prisons. CoreCivic and GEO stocks plummeted. Two months later, President Trump was elected and the stocks soared. That was an excerpt from a 2019 CNBC mini-report, Who Makes Money from Private Prisons? A topic which our next guest, Amanda Kazmira Cryer's upcoming feature-length documentary, delves into at length. Amanda, thanks for joining me here at The Movie Sneak. Thanks for having me, Craig. Absolutely. Doing a little background research on you, pretty fascinating because I've noticed that you're sort of a documentary filmmaker and you seem to dig, you know, documentary, social causes, and just old school fun film in general, too. Wonderful combination. Very admirable. <laughs> and. It kind of reminds me of um, Jeffrey Skoll's participant media company, um, where years ago he founded his production company to make films that were entertaining, yes, but also to spur social change. And some of the documentaries they've produced were movies like Fast Food Nation, The World According to Sesame Street, An Inconvenient Truth, Waiting for Superman. And some of the features they produced were like Good Night and Good Luck, Syriana, Lincoln, Spotlight, Beast of No Nation, films like that. And it's kind of interesting because when I started doing a little bit of research into you and what you've been working on, it seemed to kind of be a similar uh, uh, passion, which is very admirable. And I was kind of wondering, for those who may not be familiar with you and what you're working on, can you give us a quick capsule of yourself and the current film you're working on, uh, Inside Men? Sure. Thank you. Thanks so much, Craig. So, yeah, I've been working in the film industry for a couple of decades now, uh, off and on, not not always consistently. And uh, and I've I've. Yeah, I've been such a huge film fanatic since I was a little girl. My dad was uh, very instrumental in me becoming a huge film lover and also a music lover. My dad raised me on, you know, really great 80s and, and 90s movies, mostly 80s. And why I say that is because one of my favorite movies is Aliens by James Cameron. And I remember watching that for the first time with my dad. And cool. 
when I watched that, I immediately became a fan of specifically science fiction and horror because to me that movie was a combination of both. I know a lot mm-hmm. of people will say that movie was, you know, a science fiction, but I also see it as a horror movie because it was frightening. <laughs> it was really frightening. Mm-hmm. Very much and so. I, yeah, and I've probably seen it, you know, I would say over a hundred times. I know, you know all of the, the lines in that movie, I can recite them. And even as an adult, that movie scared me. And so I definitely would consider it a science fiction horror. But I think just throughout my life, I've just loved movies so much and music. And as a result of that being a big part of my childhood and growing up, it just continued on into my adult life, just mainly because movies and music had such a huge impact on me emotionally. And I remember watching, you know, a lot of these movies growing up and like The Breakfast Club and Braveheart and uh, Almost Famous, movies like that that really, really moved me. And I thought, God, if I could start getting involved in projects that could make other people feel that way, I would love to be to, you know, to to help contribute to co-creating something that could move people in the ways that I got moved. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where my journey began. And and throughout my life, documentaries have really been the the one type of movie that is most important to me. I, my career sort of went the other way first. I got involved in doing other types of movies initially. But the documentary work and, um, you know, social causes have always really spoken to me on a, on a heart level since, I don't know, for, for years and years now. And I was fortunate enough in around 2009 to meet and be mentored by a former director of the United Nations who at the time was looking for to, to mentor people in their respective industries and how to create massive change in their industries. And meeting oh, her, wow. That's awesome. yeah, meeting her was what is what really, you know, got me looking at, okay, what do I really want to do here while, you know, while I'm here? And that's when I got, I got very present to movie making is great and I love it. And I love watching movies purely for entertainment. I mean, there's a place for that and that that's, it's incredible. We all need that. Uh, however, I think it's, you know, equally as important, if not more to, to, for myself anyway, not for everyone, but for myself anyway, is to, is to really participate in the creation of projects that are going to somehow make a lasting change in, in what's going on with humanity. Hmm. Now, um, going over some of your background, uh, you mentioned that uh, a few years ago, um, it, it reminded me of um, Sidney Lumet, one of my all-time favorite directors, uh, moves like Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, uh, Q&A, uh, Failsafe, 12 Angry Men. He once mentioned, he said, um, all good work is self-revelation. And... I think that's so true. It also reminds me of something that Hemingway once said where somebody said, how do you write a good story? And he said, well, you cut your wrist and you bleed on the page. <laughs> and yeah. going through some of your background, I noticed that a few years back, you went through some serious, and, and, and if you know if you don't want to go into this, we can always edit it out. You went through some serious um, uh, uh, physiological uh, biological, uh, 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 I guess what I would call trauma. And I was wondering if that, how or did that encourage you or send you or re 
reinforce certain things you wanted to do or did it? I mean, was it just a minor bump in the road or did it just make you more insistent on using film to achieve certain social goals? Are you speaking about what happened with me and Hurricane Katrina or in 2017? 2017. Oh, understood. Okay, I actually didn't know about Hurricane Katrina. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, in 2017, I came pretty close to death. And I, well, I ended up in a wheelchair and I lost my ability to walk altogether. And my mom had to fly down from Canada, which is where I'm from. I was born and raised in Canada. And she had to come and get me in Atlanta because I was I, I couldn't I couldn't do anything on my own. And she came down to get me to bring me back home to Canada to to live with her. I I had become incapacitated and I needed round the care round the round the hour <laughs> round the clock care from from my mom. She had to help bathe me and things like that. So mm-hmm. I would say that that experience definitely made me, it it did a couple of different things. The first thing, what it did is it made me get very present to my mortality. Hmm. Perhaps for the first time in my life, I have always been living my life like I'm going to have forever. And Uh, yeah, as do most of us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't really like like I knew I would have forever, but it occur- it never occurred to me that death would be so close or that my life mm-hmm. would be gone so quickly, even though I've had, you know, several seniors tell me, you know, you have no idea how fast life goes by. You've really got to do what you want to do because you're going to wake up and all of a sudden you'll realize that you're, you know, you're very close to, you know, being gone. And it even though I'd had heard that from so many um you know, so many people in my family and also friends that I had that were much older than me. I never, it never really resonated deeply with me. I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. I just kind of dismissed that one particular Mm. point. And this was the first time I got very present to that fact. And I, and I mean, the thing is I've been in, you know, passenger in several head on collisions as a passenger, like I said, and then also, you know, I've been in natural disasters like Hurricane Katrina. I've been there, there are things I've experienced in my life that were frightening, and but, but it still didn't. I didn't realize how short life was, and that I would not be around forever. And and in 2017, when this happened to me, that's when I it really hit me, and it, it I got really it, I got scared. I got scared, and I thought, God, I can't believe that. Really, is this how fragile life is? And this is, and I thought to myself. I really want to do, you know, what I feel like I was meant to do here before I go. And that's when I started focusing on my efforts with social issues that I had begun really focusing on in around 2008, 2009. But I had sort of left that space and had gone back into the Hollywood movie making space Mm. And then when I got sick in 2017, I reevaluated what I was doing and thought, okay, wait a minute here. You know what really was important to me is to make a difference in the areas that I can while I can and to use mm-hmm. myself as, you know, in whatever capacity I can to make that difference. That's what matters to me the most and making sure that my family and friends are, are okay and well. So that's when, yeah, I just, 
when that happened, you know, that's when I realized that this is really what matters to me and all of the rest of it is just sort of theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, hot fucking damn. And yes, you can use four little words here. We, we do okay. all the time. And, oh, fucking <laughs> Okay, so feel, feel free. There you go. Here we go. I love it. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> so um, how and when did... Um, Inside Men, uh, when were you first electrified enough to uh, set out on working on that? And can you just explain a little bit what that is for people out there in the audience? Sure. Um, Inside Men is a documentary that I'm directing, uh, producing it, doing, wearing multiple hats on it. I'm working with other people as well involved in the documentary. But I think that with any film, when it's your creation, you kind of have to you know, tug it along yourself um, until mm-hmm. things move forward and then other people will want to get involved. It's the reason why I wanted to do something on the prison industry and mass incarceration is because I first started learning about it from a book called, uh, uh, what's it called? It's called uh, The New Convict Code. And it's written by a man named Kit Cummings. It's a really great mm-hmm. book. And after I read it, I I didn't really know about mass incarceration in the United States. I mean, I knew insofar that I knew it was a problem, and I knew that we were that this this country was uh, incarcerating people at the rates uh, rates like no other country on the planet. And I knew to that extent what was happening, but I didn't know exactly how bad it was. And so when I read that book and then I started researching and I was blown away by what was going on here, I mean, the recidivism rate in this country is 67.5%. And the moment I saw that, I thought, my God, you know, these, these, these cages, these warehouses full of human beings aren't rehabilitating anyone. They're actually creating career criminals. So it's like, you know, one of our family members or one of our good friends can make a mistake in their life and go to prison. And then when they get out they're they come out a changed person, not changed for the better. They come out a hardened criminal. And I thought to myself, how does that keep this? How does that keep us safer? It doesn't keep us safer. It actually makes, because it makes us less safe. So I thought that's ridiculous. I said if, if we're going to have prisons in this country, and I'm not saying like I'm not I'm not a I'm not a prison abolitionist. Okay, I'm not saying we need to throw out prisons and jails. I believe that there is a place for incarceration. Uh, I need I, I believe that we need to have effective incarceration, not the way it mm-hmm. currently is designed. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we need to have you know something in place that if you murder someone, yes, you go to jail. And you do your time. As a matter of fact, there's one person in my documentary right now, such a, he's a beautiful human being. And, you know, some people might listen to this podcast right now, Craig, and think I'm crazy for saying this, but this is how I feel. You know, he went to prison for 30 years. He did 30 years because he murdered two people. And he took justice into his own hands, which is illegal. And the two people he murdered are the two people that kidnapped, raped, and murdered his sister. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah. So he went to prison for 30 years because out of, you know, anger and, and sadness and depression, he said, that's it. You know, these guys are not going to go to jail and I'm going to go take matters into my own hands. And I'm not saying that people should do that. I'm not even condoning that. But what I'm saying mm -hmm. is that, you know, that guy, I, I what I know is I understand why he did it. I don't know if I would be that same way. I don't know if I could take two right. lives, even if they had killed someone in my family. But what I mean is that it doesn't make him this horrific human being. And I believe that despite the system that, that has been designed to break him down and make him worse, he's one of the very, very few people I know. And I've met a lot of people that have been impacted by the prison system. He's one of the very few people that I know that have come out after 30 years and he is this outstanding, you know, his, his heart is made of gold. And that rarely mm -hmm. happens because when you go in prison here, that heart, that, that, some, that, that heart, if it was any way soft, you rarely come out with that soft heart. It, because when you're inside, you have to fight for survival and you, you do things mm -hmm. that you might not even normally do on the outside. But he he is he's, he's an example. Of, oh, sorry, sorry, no, sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Oh no 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 no. Oh please, I I, I didn't want to interrupt your thought. Uh, no, uh, what well, I just wanted to say that he, you know, despite that system, he has he's been okay, and it's it's a shock because most people that I speak with, most folks that I talk to, you know, they they've been they're traumatized as a result of doing time in mm -hmm. prison, and they've never been able to pick up their themselves and create a. Uh, even a decent life for themselves, never mind a great life. He has been very fortunate to be able to do that. And um, it's one of the rarities, yeah. Exactly. He's one of the rarities, and he's now helping other people do the same thing. Now, one of the things um, your, your film also gets into, uh, I understand, is the prison for profit uh, aspect of things and how that can corrupt um, rehabilitation. Yes? Yes, I mean, really, really, what 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 our documentary is on is is looking at the prison industry and mass incarceration through a bit of a different lens. Uh, mm -hmm. We're, you know, we're looking at not just exposing the the companies and corporations that are making money off of the prison system, but also, you know, the governmental structure continue to have these corporations have the capacity and the ability to get these these contracts from the government because you see it's not just private corporations that are making money off of these prisons it's the state's governments as well mm. these the the corporations and the lobbyists for prisons in this country are, are lobbyists for government and that's a fact mm -hmm. I think that I think that you know people in this country think that the private corporations are the only ones that are capitalizing on this billions and billions of dollar industry, but they're not. I mean, there's people in Congress are are capitalizing on this, mm -hmm. and until we reveal that so, and follow the money, you know, I don't think people are going to really get mm -hmm. that. And that's one one thing that we're really committed to doing is not just exposing, you know who and what organizations and what groups are doing this, but also really letting people know how they can take action in that area because it really is taking action as a citizen of this country to change that. Mm -hmm. And uh, how long have you been working on Inside Men? Uh, just about, just over a year now. Uh-huh. 
And yeah. where are you presently in the in the state of the film? Right now, we're editing. We're editing the film to get us. We this film has kind of morphed into a bunch of different things over the process. We first started out wanting to do a mini series. Then we thought, well, maybe what we should just do is a short film. One of my executive producers is, is an alumni of 400 film festivals worldwide. And one of my producers, Damon Russell, uh, was a producer on the, on the short film that won uh, the Best Live Action Short in t 2013. And so working with these two guys, Brendan and Damon, they, you know, they had, we, we, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe we should just do this as a short film. It's more like a proof of concept to show people what we're doing. But then, then it's sort of, it's kind of blown up into this huge project now because other people have gotten involved. There are uh, policy advisors involved now. Uh, a lot of people involved now that have worked for both uh, Democratic and Republican candidates. And so there's, what we're really trying to do here is actually make change in that system. And, and for us to do that, it requires a lot more than just filmmakers. So we've got this all these people working with us now to really make legitimate calls to action and change. And we're bringing together, you know, both sides of the political spectrum because it's honestly, you can't change anything in this country unless both sides can come together and agree on something. If you're just Very creating, yeah. yeah, if you're just creating content that caters to one side or the other, that's fine. You can do that. I mean, I'm not committed to that because that's what causes so much division in our country. And that's something I, yeah, I'm, yeah. I do not, I can't stand that. Um, I, you know, I stand mm -hmm. for unity and equity and dignity for myself and all others. And this country is so divided and it's, you know, I, what we're trying to do here is, is have a unified stance and take a look at something that's really not working. And so that's something that we're doing that's different, I think, than other filmmakers as well. I mean, maybe other filmmakers are doing that, but I don't know about them and I don't know about their projects. But from what I've seen so far when it comes to the prison industry, I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen a documentary yet that's actually bringing you know, all political sides together to really create the systemic legitimate change. I, I made a promise when I got involved in this. I, I said, you know, we need to make sure that this film is going to be a real system shift movie. Because otherwise, what are we doing? Why are we doing more of what's already been done? And exactly, I just, yeah. Yeah, thank you, yeah. It just, yeah. Yeah, it just totally reminds me of, uh, when where you were speaking, it reminded me of a, a famous, well, I don't know how famous it is, but a quote by Orson Welles, um, who some people forget did a couple of documentaries. And he had said, um, when you're doing a narrative fictional film, the director is God. When you're doing a documentary film, God is the director in the sense that you can yeah. start out doing one thing, but while you're working on it, something else will come up and you go, oh my God, we have to address this and address this. And then you may shift direction here and there and end up creating something not quite entirely what you intended on creating, but something that is true and is real and stems from what a story that needs to be told. And I, I thought about that quote where you were just talking about how the film started in one way and you were considering doing it as a short film and, and, and maybe as a miniseries, but it's kind of evolved into something else. So yeah, it totally reminded me of that while you were talking. Oh, well, thank you, Orson Welles. And thank you for bringing that up to me because I didn't <laughs> know that quote and that is amazing. Yeah. That's Very amazing. Cool. I mean, it, it's, um, and it's so accurate <laughs> with the documentaries, that's yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah. It absolutely is. Now, how can those listening become involved in or uh, both supporting the film and prison reform? 
if you're really serious about making a difference in this industry and mass incarceration and the prison industry, if it's something that really speaks to you, the best thing to do is to look up who your state's representatives are and your local elected officials and look up research what they are committed to. And now I say that with 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 a grain of salt for, for everyone as well, because sometimes our elected officials will say that they're committed to changing this part of the system or making it better. And then they don't follow through with what they say they're committed to. And that is right. something that is our job is to really is that's where our job comes in. We really have to hold our elected officials to account for what they say they were going to yeah. do when they said they were yep. going to do it. It doesn't yep. matter who, which side of the political aisle you vote for. When it comes to those specific things about this industry, if someone says, this is what I'm going to do, you need to make sure that you hold them to account. We have um, exactly you got to ride their ass. Yep. <laughs> you have to. Yes. And you have to be willing to confront the elected officials as well. And you have to make, you have to really state like, look, I'm a taxpayer. I pay your salary, you know, or I help pay your salary, you know, because when you pay taxes in this country, that's you are essentially helping to pay salaries of your elected officials. And so when when you when you really realize that it's like, wait a minute, okay, well, if that's the case, then if you're saying you're going to do something and I'm voting for you because I'm counting on you to deliver on what you said you were going to do and you're not doing that, well, then you know what? I'm going to get in your face about that. And that's one thing about one of the women who's in our who's featured prominently in our in our film, you know, she her son passed away last August. He was just thirty years old. Wow. He had gone to prison for he he had a sentence for fifteen years for armed robbery. Um, he went into prison. He was an addict. He should have been given addiction treatment. Uh, he was an addict, and he got worse in prison. And when he came out, he never recovered. He experienced such bad PTSD while in prison. I mean, he came out and tried to get a job at Target. He was turned down. And just him just him trying to make his life better when he got out, he it's just like it's like the system destroyed him. It destroyed him. And I'm not saying that we can't we can't penalize people who do bad things. It's not that's not what it's about. Like it's not about not holding individuals to account for the crimes they commit. Or but the thing is is that the last thing you want to do is put someone in prison. Have it be that kind of experience so that when they get out, they're so much worse off. They can't contribute to society right. in a good way, you know, and then they die, you know, and it's like, what, what was the point of all of that exercise? So right. it's like, are we making things better or worse? That's yeah. exactly the thing. And we are, we are 100% making things worse. 100%. 100%. So there's not, the, the prisons are not working. And the thing is, is that anybody can recognize that it doesn't take a representative or an elected official to recognize that we as a citizen as people that live in this country we know that the prison system doesn't work but it's still nothing is changing so we need to we need to illuminate what's going on first and foremost but then also show what you can do to make a difference and like i said you it's all about contacting your representatives and saying look at this doesn't work you said you were going to do a and you haven't when are you going to deliver on a Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the documentary is also going to have some calls to action as well to really let people know what they can do. We're going to give concise instructions on what people can do in addition to what I just said right there. But I think that it's important for people to get present to the uh, to actually what's going on 
in addition to the slavery that's going on inside and with the minority communities, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in a financial aspect too, that I don't think people are aware of. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this, this system is hitting people in their wallets. This system is, is hitting mm-hmm. people that don't even think they're being impacted by the prison industry. And it's because they don't, they don't see it. And so I'm hoping that this documentary is going to illuminate a lot of that, you know, where maybe people didn't recognize that before. Mm. Phenomenal. Wow. And do you have a, um, I mean, again, with documentaries, uh, going back to the old Orson Welles quote, um, they can go in different directions and take longer than you anticipated. Uh, Do you have a particular target date that you want to be finished by or that you're looking to be finished by and... Yeah, well, I know, right? That's that's a good question. I said yes right away. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I would love to have the footage we've got right now finished and edited within the next month. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you, you're aware of this too. And I know Orson Welles was. You know, a lot of the, yeah. the film, a lot of the documentary film gets made in the editing room. Um, yeah, very much so. Yeah, so I would like to have I would like to have this first bit of footage fully edited within the next month, definitely, because we are speaking to some people right now at at some uh, big production houses. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know if it will be done in a month. the The first amount of footage we've got. I mean, this is just the first stage. We're going to be moving into stage two. We're going to be be going back to film a lot more. I'm actually going to be visiting one of the prisons. Uh, in Georgia shortly here. So we have a lot more filming to do, but this for I'm hoping my hope would be that this will be ready to show by the end of 2022. Hmm. Okay. Nice. Uh, and throwing it into festivals Excellent. by, you know, the end of this year. Excellent. Wow. Phenomenal. Well, um uh all the best and uh oh, by the way, um we will uh, have a couple of links to where uh, listeners can uh, access some of your other material, uh, such as your YouTube channel, which is uh, a lot of fun, by the way. <laughs> uh, just I can't doing the various reviews and what have you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had to. That's funny. I was going to take a look at uh, <laughs> Do a little homework on the people that you're going to be talking to. But yeah, yeah it's makes a, sense. a heck of a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks, Craig. I appreciate again, that. Well, Sure thing. That was just that was just uh, something well, that I you know I created because the, when the pandemic hit you know there wasn't a lot of work and I was like what am I going to do here and someone suggested it's going that I, crazy exactly yeah <laughs> yeah someone's like you should just throw up, you know start a YouTube channel and I was like okay let, let's see how this goes it's pretty funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> well once again uh, thank you for doing this um yeah and we'll definitely provide a couple of links so that people can see what you're up to and um yeah uh thank you so much for joining us here at the movie sneak thank you so much for having me craig it's a it's a great honor i'm really really grateful for the opportunity to share thanks so much what is he get out of here what is this about get out get out why are you doing this to me is this is this some kind of I, is this some kind of a sick joke? I don't know what you're talking about right now, but you need to leave right now. What is he? What 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 is he? I don't need to tell you anything. I think you do. I think you do. Huh? To tell me 
What is he? Tell me. Patrick was my husband. I'm your husband. I'm your husband. Do you know why I drove all the way out here? Do you know why I came out here? Huh? What do you, what do you, what do you, why are you doing this? Tell me, why are you doing this to me, Julie? Huh? I'm not Julie. Yes, you are. You're Julie and he's Patrick. Why are Patrick. you doing this? Huh? Patrick was my husband. I'm not Julie. Bring Patrick to me, allow me to return with him, and you will be rewarded. No, a river only flows downstream. I have much gold for you in return. Perhaps it'd be high for me and bring him to you. What if I find him myself? Price will be high. In that case, get him for me. You want to walk into the light? Give me one last thing from me. Chris Chan Lee. Hey, uh, thanks for joining me on the movie sneak. And B, congratulations on um, uh, uh, the success with um, Silent River at the Paris International Film Festival. I was just reading about that. Congratulations, man. Oh, great. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, we've been fortunate. We've been having a, um, we've been getting a lot of support on the festival run. And um, it's exciting, you know, experiencing how to communicate and what the movie's about and to meet audiences and to get feedback and all that, you know, so... Excellent. It's kind of funny because just going over everything that you've done and not just, you know, films and series, but just what you've done in these films and series, it almost reads like kind of a sort of modern day, uh, like Roger Corman or Tyler Perry in the sense that one of those guys and that you're something of a one man jack of all trades industry, <laughs> writer, director, cinematographer, editor, effects technician, you know, uh, just doing a little bit of everything. Uh Sergio Leone once said, I was born in the cinema, almost. And, mm. <laughs> and it almost sounds like that's maybe the case with you. I mean, did you know from an early age that, you, uh, that movies were what you wanted to do? Or did, was it a process of elimination? I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. Uh, I think I want to do this. Yeah. Um, originally, I thought that I wanted to get into computer science and programming. And this is going way back. This is like pre-Netscape, pre-Google, <laughs> you know, pre-Yahoo. So it was it was in the early days. And I would probably, if I had I continued that path, my life would probably be wildly different from mm -hmm. that of an independent filmmaker <laughs> right now. But um, 
But even when I was doing computer programming, I mean, there weren't classes at my high school, mm -hmm. if, if you can believe that. I remember those days, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, so I actually had to go to local colleges to uh -huh. get the training and take classes and stuff and get special waivers to do so. Hmm. Um, but I did realize from an early age around high school that um, I was always more interested in the visual side hmm. of even computer programming and animation and stuff. And I was making short films with my friends. Um, basically, the tipping point was when I went to a near-empty theater and watched Blue Velvet mm -hmm. by David Lynch. And that just kind of changed my world and made me want, want to become a filmmaker, you know? Um, and to address what you were saying, Craig, like out of necessity, I've learned many, many different aspects of filmmaking um, from the effects and editing and directing and writing my own content out of necessity, uh, et cetera. Uh, even I've dp I, I've been a cinematographer on films, mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, and I've done it out of necessity for the most part, but also I really enjoy hands-on physical production. And I feel like learning every part of the craft makes you a better director because mm -hmm. you know what the issues are and you're better, better able to communicate them with your cast and crew. Agreed, agreed. It's funny because um, the reason I mentioned, uh, you know, or, or I asked, you know, whether it was something you wanted to do from the beginning or something that you came to later is because uh, just as I guess with athletes, there are there are certain things you can be taught and certain things you can learn from a technical side, but other things from a more artistic side that you can't, that you just have a feel for or you don't. Right. And one of the things I love about uh, Yellow and especially Silent River uh, are that you are not a, you are not afraid to let the visuals speak for themselves. And that's something that a lot of older school filmmakers do, like a lot of my favorite filmmakers. I mean, guys like John Milius and Sidney Pollack and, and, and even Steven Spielberg and, and, and Alfred Hitchcock, they weren't afraid to let a film go on silently for a little while and just let the visuals and the music speak and let the audience sink into it. And, you know, just sort of, uh, it's almost like an airlock where like, the beginning of uh, Silent River in particular, that drive into the desert. Uh, to me, it's almost like an airlock in that the audience is going from one environment into another. Right. And I like the fact that you take the time to let your audience do that. A lot of more contemporary filmmakers seem afraid to do that. They have to jump into what I've heard some people call the narrative freight train right mm -hmm. from the get-go. And they're not a and they're afraid to let the visuals speak. Uh, but I do like that about your cinematic style. And I don't want to sound pretentious, but yeah, cinematic style. I do like that a lot. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And I, I, I appreciate that you noticed and pointed that out. Because, um, yeah, even the, the opening shot of Silent River, we were very intent on making a statement mm -hmm. with, that, with that scene, which was, you know, one continuous master shot. Um, and the statement being... That this is the kind of film that we're making hmm. you know um we're making something that where the view where each individual viewer is called upon to be an active participant mm -hmm. you know um uh to put the puzzle together uh which a lot of cinephiles and film lovers they they do that they're into it um they get excited about uh, films like that, like you mentioned, like Hitchcock and Kubrick, etc. David um, Lynch, David Lynch, yeah, David Lynch, yeah. And those for this film, those are the people that we're hoping to appeal to. Cool, you know? mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, and and also just as an aside, uh, I 
didn't realize this when I was just doing a little background uh, homework on you. I mm-hmm. saw that you worked for a little while with uh, Shin Sang-uk. How did that happen? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's amazing that you caught that. I, um, you know, I think we were, I was introduced by uh, a young Korean-American producer that was working with him. And um, uh, because they, they were looking, this was a long time ago, so mm-hmm. I'm really digging deep into my memory. But, <laughs> but, um, but uh, they, they were doing the, uh, the Three Ninjas movie. It's like uh-huh. a fam- family film with a bunch of kids, mm-hmm. um, obviously with a martial arts backdrop. And they needed to do a rewrite of the script, so they approached me about doing so. And I knew a little bit about Shin Sang-ok and what a legend he is and, 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 and the very dramatic experiences mm-hmm. that he had gone through. Uh, back in Korea and North Korea, the whole hostage situation and all that stuff. Um, and uh, so I was pretty intimidated meeting him. He was quite old even when I met him. We're th- talking maybe 25, 27 years ago or so. Um, but it was really just a meet and greet. And the actual people I worked with were his team, you know, and they were based in Los Angeles. Um, and when I told my parents about it, they freaked out because they knew who he was, <laughs> who he was. All stuff, you know, it's like, yeah, it was a big deal for, for, for our family. Um, it's funny because even when, you know, as a filmmaker, you know, we did get my, with my first film yellow, I got a fair amount of publicity and press. Like we did LA times mm-hmm. and some blurbs and Chicago papers and stuff like that. Um, but when we got actually articles, reviews and stuff published in the Korean newspapers, that was like real validation for my parents. Very you cool. know, it's like, nice. oh, this is real. What you're doing is actually something to... <laughs> awesome. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, now, some of the other films you've done... Uh, now, I haven't seen Undoing, uh, but that sounds pretty badass cool. Uh, and Obits and the series growing up just sound fascinating as hell. Um, so, uh, I, definitely, uh, uh, any quick little tidbits on those? Uh yeah, so after after I did Yellow, um, which premiered in 1997, we premiered the film at the same time as three other Asian-American features. So it was commonly referred to as Class of 1997. It was like a new wave uh-huh. of, of new filmmakers doing Asian-American content. And our films were like wildly different. So there were Sunsets by Eric Nakamura and Mike Itamoto, and Strawberry Fields by Rhea Tijeri, and um, Shopping for Fangs by uh, Quentin Lee and Justin Lin, and then there's Yellow, which which I did. Uh, and so we were on the festival circuit quite a bit together for about a year, and we sort of forged like an alliance and, and, and new friendships with each other. Mm-hmm. So when we did Obits, uh, we were like, let's collaborate, let's do you know an omnibus about death and we each do our own take on it and we'll patch them together and make a, a feature film out of it. So that's what that, that came about. And it basically just lived on the film festival circuit for a bit. Um, and then uh, and then I was like looking for a job and it was really early to be an Asian American filmmaker in Hollywood. So there wasn't really many opportunities for me. You know? So you um, had to make some, yeah. Yeah, so I got offered, when I went to the Hawaii Film Festival uh, there were some people on their staff that actually work uh, normally, you know, outside the festival during the regular year in Singapore for MediaCorp Television, 
And they asked me to go, they gave me a one-year contract to go direct English language TV. Um, and uh, so one of the shows was uh, an hour-long episode, uh, hour-long, I did several hour-long episodes of Growing Up, which is a very beloved family drama, period drama in Singapore. Um, and I also did some other shows there as well. So it was a great, great learning. It was like really fast moving, mm. you know, like we would, I would barely get the script. We have to start shooting and it was, you know, so it was great that I kind of got to learn how to shoot from the hip, mm. you know? So, yeah. Now, Yellow is definitely the film that I guess for all intents and purposes puts you on the map. And, uh, mm. I mean, it premiered in 97, like I guess what is now called uh, Camfest. Um, but back then it was what uh, was it Nada or S- San Francisco International? Exactly. Okay. It was okay. Nada, yeah. Nada. And uh, so, for those who may not be familiar with it, can you just give us a quick, um, you know, give the audience a quick capsule of that one? Um, you know, I grew up in the '80s, and uh, I was an avid consumer of uh, of the the new youth pop culture that mm-hmm. was breaking out because of the advent of cable TV and MTV and all those those landmark uh, teen, teen feature films, you know? And, but one thing that was really lacking at the time was any kind of reasonable representation of Asian Americans or even people of color for that matter. So I was really hungry and I felt like I couldn't be the only one to want to see Asian Americans front and center um, in a movie, you know? Like to me, that was like a really exciting idea so um, um, I, I had, I, you know, I, I had come out of USC film school. I was shopping a script around. Nobody really got it. Uh, it was about a guy starting um, a business in San, uh, an immigrant, Korean immigrant starting a business in San Francisco, which is exactly my family's background. Mm-hmm. You know, open, opening up like basically a convenience store, and then it becomes sort of a Romeo and Juliet story because he falls in love with a, a Latino woman that lives in the, in the building. And, uh, and I, and I had meetings, but like, it didn't really make any sense to people. Mm-hmm. Like where's, where's the story coming from? Mm-hmm. And then the riots broke out, you know, in LA mm-hmm. in 1992 and suddenly the racial tensions that were described in the story and there was a little bit of violence and stuff. Um, and it, like suddenly like that became like very relevant and I got lots of meetings like all over town, all the various studios, but, um, uh, it still didn't lead to anything. So I was like, okay, screw it. I'm just going to make a movie on my own um, because no one's going to give it to me, you know? And um, that's when I wrote Yellow, which was, you know, long story short, uh, it was it was a an ensemble teen drama comedy with Asian Americans front and center, which I had always hoped and dreamed to do. Hi, right, man, you got 10 minutes. Don't go pulling your pug, all right? Look, man, we'll just, we'll just call the guys later. Man. Just, right now, we gotta keep moving because all, all this money makes me nervous as shit. <laughs> I tell you what, it's only yours. What? You can have the money. <laughs> what do I need the fucking money for? You saying I risked my ass for nothing? I'm sorry, Alex. This is not happening. 
I mean, who, who in the hell were we doing this for in the first place? You want to walk out on this now? I just give you a chance, man. I just give you a chance, you fuck, and you want to walk? Congratulations. Your pansy. This is your life. This is your fucking life. And we had like 13 bands that were all. Asian American hip hop artists and pop and punk and indie indie rock uh, music and um, and you know there was there was a real thirst for it at the time it was it was pretty radical and I was told not to do it with all Asians I was told to not cast you know to cast it differently with the mm -hmm. leads and stuff like that I was told no one's going to come see this movie um, we did really well in the festival circuit and we. We got a, a, a limited theatrical deal that played across the United States in limited markets, and we had a five-week run across nine screens in Southern, Southern California. So we actually had an excellent run, and there were people that wanted to come see the film. Mm. You know, yeah. It was kind of neat because um, while watching it, um, I kind of was thinking of, um, I wrote a piece a few weeks ago, uh, about what I've always referred to as um, walking distance movies. And that comes from a Twilight Zone episode with a character played by Gig Young. He's this businessman who's harried. He's on the verge of a nervous breakdown. He's driving one day near the town he grew up. His car breaks down while it's getting repaired in the shop. The town is within walking distance, so he goes to the town, and lo and behold, it's the town uh, when he was 12 years old in that town. And he meets himself as a 12-year-old boy. He meets his father, who's around the same age as he is now. And he does a lot of reflecting. And I, the piece was about how I think every filmmaker or every novelist has their own walking distance story, which is a story where you return to your own past to a certain degree. Where mm -hmm. you, um, I would say, you know, American Graffiti is certainly George Lucas's walking distance film. Boys in the Hood is John Singleton's. Uh, Dazed and Confused is one. I would say Promised Land is another. And um, you know, Stephen King, uh, Stand By Me, and It would be his walking distance mm -hmm. stories, you know. And um, I was wondering if Yellow would, would kind of be your walking distance story because you did mention, uh, I mean, obviously there are some parts in it that are, you know, autobiographical, the whole thing about the, yeah. you know, the, the, the family, the convenience store. Mm -hmm. um, but I, and I guess just with any, uh, any family of color that has both older generations and younger generations, be they older generations from another country or from the South, you know, which you see a lot in African-Americans. Um, and there's often just a very different worldview between the generations. And I love how your film um, really did that in a very realistic way. Oh, and also, you deserve to go to heaven for getting Soon Take uh, to be in your movie, okay? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he, is the, he is the coolest guy in the world. I've always loved him in various movies. Yeah. The Man with the Golden Gun, the various animation voices he's done. And, uh, yeah, I thought he was phenomenal. And I just thought, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. But even with the younger performers, many of whom, you know, this is some of their earliest stuff. And it just so many very realistic, very naturalistic performances out of such young actors. And um, how did you get that? <laughs> how did you get those yeah. performances? 
Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, wow, you, some of the, the films that you mentioned were all like highly influential for me, uh, mm-hmm. in particular American Graffiti and Boys in the Hood. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, to really invest uh, a personal background into those movies really, you know, resonates, right? Um, and, um, and the, you know, that was one thing that made the movie possible. I mean, it was a small little $150,000 film. That's a lot of money. Um, but for the for the time of shooting a movie mm-hmm. in Super 16 all yeah. the way to, to a 35 millimeter print, like that's we did it very very low budget, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and the thing is, is uh, the thing that we had on our side was like that cast that we had, you know, Jason Tobin, John Cho, Burt Bulas, uh, Angie Sa, etc. You know, they're used to going out to doing, like, Chinese delivery auditions. Right, you know, right, right, right. At, at that time. So this was, like, something like, wow, this is, this is like, a real new opportunity where they could, you know, they could flex and show their colors and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So everybody was, like, personally invested in the project, mm-hmm. which is what made it possible, you know. Nice. Um, yeah. And now we come to Silent River. <laughs> which is a film that is kind of hard to describe without giving certain aspects away. Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting. I, I love the fact that it, it, it seems in the first few moments to start off as an almost, uh, you know, contemporary fool for love kind of thing, you know, Sam uh-huh. Shepard, where, you know, this guy is going and he to meet uh, his estranged uh, mm-hmm. wife. Uh, we're not exactly sure what yet um, in this you know, hotel out in the middle of nowhere. Okay, boom. And then, what, 10 minutes into the movie, things take kind of a left turn and uh, <laughs> and doesn't look back. Um, mm-hmm. And I love the fact that, I mean, I have, you know, I grew up, you know, reading all kinds of, you know, Richard Matheson and Loving Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits and Night Gallery and all those. And I love a film because early on in, in any film, if you've read all that stuff growing up, you're kind of like predicting, oh, this is probably going on, this is probably going on, this is probably going on. And I love being thwarted. You know, mm. I love saying, damn, that's not what's happening, you know, <laughs> and yeah. then saying, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> and yeah. then later on, oh, OK, OK, cool. I get it. I get it. Tell me about Amanda. The employee directory tells me that Amanda has not yet departed. No, tell me about Amanda. What is she like? Amanda presents a threat to Greta's security. I advised Greta not to meet with her. Why not? Greta seeks to bargain with Amanda because she does not know if she will be able to cross without help. What does she need to cross? There is a payment. It must be made in gold. Elliot. Do you know why you are here? But yeah, I mean, that's another kind of uh, old school film in the sense that, I mean, I grew up falling in love. I mean, I, I was a weird kid, but I grew up um, like back when HBO was new back in the uh, early to mid 70s. Mm-hmm. And they used mm-hmm. to run everything from Hollywood movies like The Poseidon Adventure, Uptown, Saturday Night and Live and Let Die to the film The Francois Truffaut and Lena Wertmuller and Vittorio De Sica. Mm-hmm. So from an early age, I was just growing up watching what some people would call esoteric films. 
in yeah. films that basically left it up to the audience to, you know, bring their own subconscious to it. And mm -hmm. you don't see a lot of that anymore these days. Um, you know, because e even with reviewers, you have reviewers saying this film doesn't know what it wants to be mm -hmm. or, or uh, these characters are not likable or something like that. You know, it's almost like a film school 101 uh, review of a movie that it has to follow this path. Um, otherwise, you know, don't veer from the path. Step on a butterfly. You'll screw everything up, you know, sort of the narrative yeah, yeah. version of that. But I love how your film was old school and that. Yeah, I mean, um, now I, I, wow. wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say like 2001 or Solaris, you know, <laughs> you know, unfathomable. But I love the fact that it is a bit of a, you know, excuse my expression, nice little mind fuck going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Again. Craig, you impressed me with these references. I mean, so it's funny that you bring up Sam Shepard because one of our main cast members, Dakota Loesch, who plays the stranger, mm -hmm. he he has often said that that he gets this sort of Sam Shepard flavor from his character as well as certain elements of the story. Okay, yeah. Um, and and I don't want to go off on a tangent, but I'm a huge fan of uh, Richard Matheson's. Uh, 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 I am legend. Uh. I, so I read the book, and basically, I know, like in the book, it, they're actually the the quote unquote monsters are um, are vampires. Yeah. But it basically gave birth to the zombie movie, mm -hmm. right? Like, and and there, as I'm sure you know, there have been three there have been three adaptations of that book into movies. The first one was with Vincent Price, and then Charlton Heston, and then. Will Smith, and they are all interesting in different ways. I feel like at the midpoint, I love the Will Smith one, actually. I know a lot of people don't. Yeah, I so have, do like, I. I have the collector's edition Blu-ray of that. Nice. Stuff. Uh -huh. It kind of, like, the, the flaw with that movie, I felt like, was the execution of the monsters a little bit. Okay. Um, but as a, as a survival story for the first half of the movie, it's just incredible, yeah, right? it really yeah. is. Yeah. And, and anyways, but... Um, Okay, to get back to on topic, um, uh, which I'm now. Oh, oh, yeah. So, so yeah, we really wanted to make a movie where uh, where it does it, it kind of sets up expectations. Like the beginning of the film, you sort of think, okay, this this guy who who's trying to get back together with his ex, and he just looks like his heart's broken. Mm. So we're going to see him moping around the hotel for for two hours or something. <laughs> but then. But then the surprises come into the picture, um, and that's sort of that's sort of the idea thematically is that life has twists and turns, and things don't go as expected, and it does evolve into a different experience than we believe the setup might lead us mm. towards. Right. So yeah. So uh, uh, what's in the future with uh, for Silent River? I mean, I know right now it's running uh, the festival circuit. Um, has it been picked up? Uh, by any distributor for any kind of uh, theatrical release or, or, or streaming release or something like that? Uh, or is it still too early to think about that? We're, we're, we're anticipating being on the festival circuit for most of this remaining year, okay. 2022. Uh, we are in discussions with um, towards uh, distribution and, and, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to announce things formally soon, you know? Um, but, but that is that is moving ahead, and that's definitely um, the result that we're looking for, so we can really reach a lot of people. Mm, cool. Yeah. And uh, any, and, and I know, like the past two years have kind of thrown a monkey wrench into everybody's plans yeah. in general. But um, 
what's up, uh, you know, along with the uh, remaining festival run of Silent River, um, what's up next with, for uh, Chris, Chris Lee? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's funny because we shot the film in the summer of 2019. Had we waited any longer, mm. because I was advised to like wait for certain things to come together, etc. Had we waited, like I wouldn't even have the film right now. Yeah, everything you know would have got scuttled, yeah. Everything would have got scuttled, and it would, just would not have happened. It would have been impossible. So I was really lucky that we just kind of pushed forward with it. Um, I have several other scripts and projects in addition to ideas with other collaborators and stuff, I'd like to get, get into, jump into as soon as possible to make a next movie. Um, you know, and uh, so that's the hope. I mean, I, I have some, some, some scripts that I'm really excited about that I would like to direct, you know? Cool. Yeah. Oh, and it's just a, neat, a nifty little aside or a little Easter egg hunt. I think it's kind of mm -hmm. cool that um, there seems to be this neat little, uh, uh, um, brotherhood of sorts between you and other filmmakers that like where you may have done editing on their film or cinematography like uh dax Phelan is, is that how to pronounce his name um yeah. who yeah i noticed how he is one of the on one of the tv news shows in um in silent river exactly. <laughs> but it kind of reminds me of that relationship between like uh guillermo del toro and 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 um um and the other two guys. Oh God, my God, my, my mind's going yeah, blank yeah, right yeah. now. But you know who I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they're first members of three amigos. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, being an independent filmmaker is often a very lonely journey. Mm -hmm. So, um, so to have met and collaborated with people like Dax, Phelan, Wes Liang, our lead actor mm -hmm. and producer in Silent River, um, it's really great to forge those alliances and cause we, we all get each other excited, hmm. you know, about making movies like, uh, Bob Cho, our producer is another person I've been working with throughout the years. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, to have that support system is really invaluable. And, you know, like, so for example, Dex is a writer, director, uh, and producer. He even worked as a co-producer on Orson Welles's, uh, last, feature film, uh, The Other Side of the Wind, oh, cool. as well as several other movies. And I, I met Dax through a mutual friend, Jason Tobin, who's pretty well-known uh, Asian actor that's doing um, this awesome show called Warrior right now. Mm. And, um, and Jason was in my first movie, Yellow. So again, there's nice. that support system where they had shot Jasmine, they were looking for an editor, uh, Jason introduced me to Dax. I came on board mm -hmm. and I started working on it. And then before we know it, like Dax and I are having a lot of fun working together in the editing room. And after we would edit, we would sit down and watch a movie together, cool. you know, and stuff like that. So, so we would both kind of learn from each other and, and inspire each other. And uh, that that's probably the best part of making a film, you know? So awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, cool, man. Again, uh, Thanks for doing this. This was this was a blast. <laughs> Great. And thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely cool. And uh, we'll definitely have to do this again. That would be awesome. Cool. All right, man. Thank you so much. Can you dig it? That'll do it for this installment. And huge thanks to Stacy Lane Wilson. Amanda Kazmira Cryer and Chris Chan Lee for making this one bust out full with all kinds of fascinating stuff. 
take a look at the movie sneak page for this particular episode for links which will allow you to stay abreast of the three directors, their work, and how to catch the films discussed, as well as how to stay in the loop in regards to what they'll be up to next. As usual, I'm Craig Jamison of Gull Cottage Online, thanking you for joining us here at the Movie Sneak. Until the next time, when we'll meet you up there again in those cheap seats. Take care. Reminder that all film, music, and other clips are the rights and property of the copyright holders and are used here for entertainment, educational, and criticism purposes only.